Well, please grab a Bible if you can and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. That's where we are today. We're approaching in Matthew 5, uh, the end of the first big section on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been studying the sermon for a while now. Uh, And in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching us repeatedly how to love. That's the goal. He, He wants us to be people who can love. He doesn't want us to be legalists. That is, folks who are slavishly bound by the rules and trying to somehow earn acceptance by God through our performance. And he doesn't want us to be lawless, that is, doing whatever we want, thinking, well, because I'm saved by grace, it doesn't matter how I live. He wants us to love. He wants us to be people who love one another truly. And he's been helping us to see what that means uh, by teaching us what love is. And for starters, he says, well, love means you don't kill people. (laughs) Love is not murder, but it also means giving up anger and contempt and seeking reconciliation instead. He says, love means that you don't commit adultery, of course, but it also means that you don't lust. Uh, Love means that we honor marriage highly and we don't divorce except for the most serious of reasons. Love means we keep our word, we speak truthfully all the time. Love means that when others do wrong to us, we don't seek payback, but instead forgive and freely give to them. That's the picture that Christ has painted for us of love in this chapter 5 in Matthew. Uh, And now as we come to the end of chapter 5, we have to ask a really important question. Who is all of this for? Who is this for? He's explained what love looks like in broad terms. Now I have to say, who is it for? Uh, Who are we supposed to love? Because this is really penetrating stuff. The the, the love that he's teaching us to have here is very penetrating. It goes deep. We're not just talking about actions that we do, but also attitudes that we have, things that are deep in our hearts and our minds. So we've seen that love goes deep. Now the question is, how wide is it? How wide does it go? Who am I supposed to love with a love like this that Jesus lays out in Matthew 5? I mean, realistically, well, I could maybe do this with my family or maybe a few close friends. So so tell me, Jesus, how wide is this love you're asking me to show to people? What is the extent of the law of love? And here, in the end of chapter 5, Jesus says, well... Everyone. Everyone. The extent of the law of love is for everyone. Not just for your family, not just for your friends, but even for your enemies. The verses are Matthew 5, 43, through the end of the chapter. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes, the sun ri- he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, The three questions that I want to address to help us understand this passage are pretty simple. Who must we love? Why must we love them? And how do we find the power to love like this? Okay, so who, why, and how. The first question is who, who do we love? And and for starters, well, he says you must love your neighbors. Right Right there in verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, The first part of that verse is actual scripture. That is, Jesus is quoting actual Old Testament scripture. And he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. That comes from Leviticus 19.18. 
Leviticus 19.18. It is one of the most quoted verses in the Old Testament. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You didn't know there was something that great in Leviticus, did you? Uh, Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, that's, that's, that's a real scripture. And in the original context, the key phrase there is that little phrase, you, as yourself. Okay, that's, that's the, the, the sting in it. He says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. How do I love my neighbor? The same way that you want to be loved, the same way that you show concern and care about yourself, you should show that same love to your neighbor. Okay, but, it, but it got a little too hard to really take that at face value. And so people early on began to say, you know, let's just ignore that as yourself part and focus on the fact that it says love your neighbor. Say, so just as love your neighbor. So, so the real question is, who is my neighbor? See, because if I can define that down, then all of a sudden this command becomes very easy. Uh, you see, that was a, it was a live question in the time of Jesus. There's a, a great scene in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus interacts with one of the teachers of the law. Luke 10, 25, it says, A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, he knows the verse. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So you see, they knew the verse. They were very familiar with the command, love your neighbors yourself, but they focused in on that little phrase, your neighbor. So who is my neighbor? If I can just define that down, if I can know who's supposed to be in the box of people I'm supposed to love, well then, then I can keep the command. And generally speaking, in the time of Jesus, that box was defined as Jews, fellow Jews, who were ethnically like you, who lived relatively close to you, who believed the same way that you believed. That's your neighbor. And you know, as far as that goes, it's not bad. It's not wrong. I mean, we should love our neighbors. We should love people who are ethnically similar to us. We should love people who uh, live near us. We should love people who go to the same church that we do. You should love people who vote the same way as you do. You should love people who like the same things that you like. The problem comes when we stop there. And we only love those people. Because he just says, it's not just enough to love your neighbor if you want to draw a little box around that. You have to love your enemies. So again in Matthew chapter 5, he says, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Where did this come from? I told you, the first half of this verse, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, that's scripture. Okay, you can find a verse for that. Leviticus 19, 18, look it up, it's there. Command of God. You will search in vain to find the second half of that. You will not find a Bible verse that says, hate your enemies. It's flat out not there. Now, it is a natural tendency in our hearts, like that makes sense. We hear someone say that, we think, yes, (laughs) love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But you're not going to find it in scripture because it's just not there. It was taught to people, so that's why Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but that was not there. It's a perverted teaching. It doesn't come from Scripture, but it comes from a misinterpretation. Right? 
This is an inference that comes from that belief that neighbor, love your neighbor means just love a certain group of people. Okay, so if you can define neighbor as just this certain group of people, then you say love your neighbor means love these people. Well, what do I do with the rest of the people then? Well, clearly I don't have to love them because they're not my neighbor. In fact, if they're my enemy, I guess I should hate them. So love for your neighbor becomes a justification to hate anyone who's not your neighbor. Jesus, of course, challenges this. And he says, I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. In case you were wondering who your enemies are, he says, pray for those who persecute you. So those who persecute you. Back in verse 11 of chapter 5, he talked about this as well. He says, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Okay? Your enemies, these people who are against you. And Jesus says, love these people. Love not just your neighbor, love even those who are persecuting, even those who are lying about you, even those who are reviling you. Love even your enemies. Love the kid at school who's a bully. Love the person at work who gossips about you and everybody else. Love that family member who hurt you. Love the thieves who broke into your house and stole your stuff. Love the Republicans. Love the Democrats. Love homosexuals. Love those who hate homosexuals. Love people of other races and love the white supremacists. Love police officers and those who shoot police officers. Love your enemies. Love ISIS. Jesus says, love these people. Whoever's your enemy, love them. The extent of love includes even these people. You see what he's doing? He's saying, we, we like to draw a little box around the people that we will love, the people who are like us, or we'll stretch a little bit, maybe people who are a little not, not like us, but still pretty good people. He says, we draw this box around the people we're going to love, and he says, no, if you're going to draw a box, here's where your borders are. It has to be big enough to include your enemies. And if you've drawn the box big enough to include your enemies, all of a sudden you've included everyone, haven't you? See, the command for us to love, the extent of love is not just for the people like us, it's for everyone. And the second question, then, of course, is why would we do that? Jesus, why would we love our enemies when every natural impulse in us says, no, I want to hate them? The answer comes in verse 45. He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, first we should love our enemies because God the Father does good to his enemies. This is who he is. He does good to his enemies. We as Christians are children of the Father. And this is how he acts. So if we're children of him, we should act the same way. Jesus is appealing here to, to what the theologians would call common grace. There's grace that is common to everyone. It's, it's, it's for everybody. It's common. He appeals to things like sunshine. He said the Lord makes the, God makes the sun rise. Number one, he sends rain, like we're experiencing right now, rain that falls and, and causes crops to grow and provides food and life for all of us. And Jesus says the Father is in charge of these things, and look what he does. He gives them indiscriminately to everyone. 
He gives the sun to good people and to bad people. He lets the rain and food come for good people and wicked people. If you think about it, God, God could create a system where selectively only good people have good weather. He, he could create a system where he's got, you know, you got wicked people walking around. They've got their own private little clouds above them and they only have you know, bad weather and it's always cold. They're walking around in bundled clothes because it's winter for them. And meanwhile, Christians have got their shorts and their t-shirts and they're experiencing their little pockets of sunshine. You could conceive of a system where only ethical farmers, good farmers get rain and produce their crops and the wicked farmers don't get any and they have droughts and, and they never produce anything. Where good businesses led by godly people flourish and wicked businesses led by wicked people don't. That could happen. You know, we often ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? It's just as legitimate to ask, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to bad people? You know why? It's because God loves his enemies. It's because God loves his enemies. He doesn't treat any of us like we deserve. He shows grace to the evil and to the just alike. And you and I, as Christians, are sons and daughters of this Father. So there ought to be a family resemblance. If we're going to be like our Father, then we too have to be like Him in this, that we love our enemies. That we use the power that we have, whatever it is, to do good, not just for our friends, but for our enemies. Not just for those who do good, but for those who do evil. That's what God does. That's what His children does. Especially, you see this when you look at Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, we get an additional motivation to love our enemies. We love them because Jesus died for his enemies. Right? We look at the Father and we see he does good to everyone, good and evil alike. He does good to his enemies. And then you look at Jesus and you see this on display it, better than anywhere else. Jesus Christ died for his enemies. In Romans 5, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Paul lays out for us this dynamic, and he says in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Did you hear that? In verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of Jesus. This is the way that God works. Jesus died for us not because we were lovable, not because we were good, not because we were even seeking after him. Jesus died for us while we were enemies, while we were opposing him, living life on our own, doing whatever we wanted, trying to be God of our own lives. Instead of God justly and rightly pouring out his hatred on us as we deserve, he became one of us. He lived a perfect life of love and offered his life 
to give us life. Jesus loved his enemies. He loved you and me. And if being a follower of Jesus means anything at all, it must mean that we would love our enemies too. This is central to who Christ is. This is central to who the Father is. God loves his enemies. If we are going to call ourselves Christians, if we're going to call ourselves children of God, followers of Jesus, then we must love our enemies. It's not negotiable. So how do we do that? How do we find the power to do that? You know, if loving enemies is, on the one hand, so vastly important, on the other hand, so hard and counterintuitive, how do we do it? Where do we find the power to love with this sort of extent? Back to Matthew 5. Jesus notes in Matthew 5, 46 and 47, that this is, in fact, extraordinary behavior. So he knows he's not asking us to do something easy. Matthew 5, 46 says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Are you not, or do not even the Gentiles do the same? He's, he's, acknowledging, he's acknowledging that it is not normal to love your enemies. He says the normal behavior is you love the people who love you. And he notes, even the vile tax collectors do that. Now, we, we don't like taxes in our day, uh, but it is even worse here, right? The tax collectors are the people who are Jewish, but they're working for the oppressing Roman government. Uh, they have the right from the Romans to collect taxes and then add on whatever they want on top of that. So these folks are going around to their own countrymen, collecting taxes for the oppressing government, and then extorting even more money off the top of that so they can get wealthy. Okay? These are not popular people. He says, even these guys, who you would agree are the worst of the worst, love those who love them. It's normal. And he says, you know, even the, the Gentiles who haven't had the teaching of Scripture and, and are not a part of the family of God, even these folks will greet the people who greet them. Everybody does that. But loving enemies is unique. Loving enemies is extraordinary. It's not natural. Tax collectors do not do that. Unbelievers do not do that. He says, but Christians are supposed to do that. So how do we do that? It's not normal. We can't just make it happen. Where do we get the power to do an unnatural, even a supernatural thing? It comes from doing what we've already begun to do today. It comes from understanding and believing the gospel. And, and here's, here's how I'm framing it today. You will love your enemies to the extent that you understand God's love for you. Uh, that's the secret. That's the trick. If you want to love your enemies, you will love your enemies to the extent that you understand God's love for you. That is, if, if you have a small understanding of God's love for you, then you will find it very, very difficult to love your enemies. But if you have been ravished by the love of God, if you have grasped deeply the reality of the gospel, then it will become almost inevitable that you love your enemies. Okay, to the extent that you understand God's love for you, you will love your enemies. This is beautifully expressed by Jesus in a story he tells in Matthew 18. 
you hung around me for any amount of time, you'll have heard me tell you this story because I love it. It's one of my favorites. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 23, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's like a billion dollars. Tons of money. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Right. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. A billion dollars wiped off just like that. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is less than a thousand dollars. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Can we all just agree that that first servant was an idiot? Right? I mean, this is ridiculous. He owes a billion dollars. He begs for mercy, gets it forgiven, turns right around, goes out and chokes a man because he can't pay off his thousand dollar debt, which by itself is not insignificant, but in comparison to the billion is ridiculous. Okay, this guy is a fool. How do you act like that? How do you go out from, a, from just being forgiven a billion dollars to choking someone and not showing them the same mercy you just received? How do you do that? I think he had to have not understood what happened to him. He had to miss something at some point. Because, because if you really understood that you had a debt of a billion dollars forgiven, you do not go out and choke a guy who owes you a, a grand. If you understand it, you, you, you go out and you show mercy, and that's what Jesus expects. He says, so also my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus says, don't be an idiot. Don't be like this guy. Realize that you've been forgiven. Understand the love that God has shown you and show that same love to others. Right. Do, do you see how this applies to loving our enemies? Right. We are the debtors who owe a billion dollars. We are the enemies of God. And through the death of Jesus, God has freely forgiven all of our debts. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. How could we then turn around and hate our enemies? When God has done so much for us, how can we not show the same mercy to others? If we understand the love of God to the extent that we understand the love of God, we will show that same love to others. We need help with this, though. That's, that's why I think that's why Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that the Ephesians would know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God. He's praying for them to have a three-dimensional understanding of the love of God. He wants them to understand it you know, in its in its hugeness, not have a superficial understanding of love of God. Say, oh yeah, God loves me. 
He wants them to know it. To, and I, don't, I want you to know it. I want to know it. The depth and the height and the width and the breadth of the love of God that's ours in Christ Jesus. We, we, we stay on a superficial understanding of the love of God so often because we think way too highly of ourselves. We love ourselves. We do. We think we're awesome. We think that we're pretty good people, that we're better than others, certainly better than our enemies. We think our sins aren't that bad. There's other people who have really bad sins. I sin, yes, but it's not that bad. We think that we are essentially lovable. That of course God loves me. That's not surprising. Because I'm me. Who doesn't love me? I love me. And and that, that love for ourselves, that high view of ourselves, keeps us trapped on a superficial understanding of the love of God. A superficial understanding that says, of course God loves me because I'm a good person, I do good things, what's not to like? I'll tell you what's not to like, everything. (laughs) We are sinful, we are wicked, we are opposed to God. We are not good people. Jesus didn't die for good people. If we were good, he wouldn't have had to die. Jesus died for you and me while we were still enemies. And until we grasp that truth, we will never love our enemies because we will always think that love is for the deserving. But if instead of that, we take an honest look at ourselves, we begin to get a sense of the seriousness of our own sin, we begin to know some of our own wickedness, we begin to understand our utter helplessness to save ourselves and see that salvation must come freely by grace alone. Then, then we get transformed by love. Then we move beyond the superficial understanding of love. Well, of course God loves me. To a three-dimensional view of God's love, like we sang about today. Amazing love. How could it be that you, my king, would die for me? How could it be? Are you amazed by that? You just sing it. Are you amazed that God would die for you? even you. When, when we grasp that, you begin to grasp that deeply, personally, the amazingness of the love of God. And then it changes the way you view your enemies. Yes, they may truly be horrible people who deserve to die. That may be true. But so am I. So are you. We were all horrible people who deserve to die, but in that place of weakness, God came in and he showed grace. And if we're going to be children of the Father, followers of Jesus, we do the same for them. That's where you get the power to love. That's that's where you get the ability to spread the borders of your love to include even your enemies. I'm sure... All of us, or almost all of us, are aware um, of a brutal beheading of 21 Coptic Christians by ISIS uh, in a video that was released this last month. It was uh, a horrible event. I haven't watched the video. I'm never going to watch it. I don't want to. It's terribly evil just to know about it. But I just want you to think, okay, that's, this is where this command gets teeth, right? What do you do? In that situation, what do you, what do you, how do you respond if those are your sons or your brothers on the beach getting their heads chopped off because they're Christians? How would you expect me to respond if 21 of you were rounded up and had your heads chopped off? What would you expect me to say to lead us through this? 
um, well, amazingly, the responses of these Coptic Christians has been one of love and forgiveness. I'm going to close today by reading you a series of responses, a series of statements from one of the leaders of their church. He's a, he's a bishop in their church. His name is Bishop Angelos. I want you to listen as I read a, a couple different interviews he gave and hear the sound of a heart that's been transformed by the love of God. This is from his official statement on the murder of these Christians. He says, It is with deep feelings of sorrow and pain that we received confirmation earlier this evening of the brutal murder of Coptic Christians in Libya at the hands of ISIS. While every life is sacred and every death tragic, the particular brutality demonstrated in this instance and others like it shows not only a disregard for life, but a gross misunderstanding of its sanctity and equal value in every person. Our prayers are particularly with the families of these young Coptic men who were fathers, brothers, sons, and friends of many within their tight-knit rural communities in which their absence will cause significant loss and sorrow. The families are not only deprived of breadwinners who had traveled to Libya to support them, but of the joy that they bring when they return. Just stop there for a second. Nothing unsurprising here. I mean, this is powerful. This is wonderful what he's saying. But, he's, you know, the first two paragraphs, he's just saying, we're very sad that this happened, and we're praying for the families. Then he continues. While it may seem illogical or incomprehensible, we also pray for those who have carried out these horrific crimes, that the value of God's creation and human life may become more evident to them, and in this realization that the wider effects of pain brought by this and other acts of brutality may be realized and avoided. We pray for an end to the dehumanization of captives who become more commodities to be bartered, traded, and negotiated with. He admits it. He says this, this may seem illogical. It may seem incomprehensible that we do this. But we pray for those who have done this. It sounds like Matthew 5, doesn't it? Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why would you do that? Why would you pray for somebody who killed these people? Because that's what you do. That's what you do when you're transformed by the love of God. You see that your enemies are men just like you, that they just haven't been transformed yet by the love of God. Same bishop was interviewed by CNN as well, and they said, do you really forgive ISIS? That was their question. Do you really forgive ISIS? Because we heard that you forgive them. Do you really? He said, yes. It may seem unbelievable to some of your readers, but as a Christian, and a Christian minister, I have a responsibility to myself and to others to guide them down this path of forgiveness. We don't forgive the act because the act is heinous, but we do forgive the killers from the depths of our hearts. Otherwise, we would be consumed by anger and hatred. It becomes a spiral of violence that has no place in this world. Again, he acknowledges, this is weird, because it may seem unbelievable to your readers, but as a Christian, I forgive. I really don't have any other choice. We have to forgive. Not saying what they did was okay, but forgiving them from the heart. And then finally, in a report from Christianity of the Day, he says this, speaking about forgiveness. He says, I think as Christians, forgiveness is our mandate. It's what we do. I don't see it as being difficult. Really? <laughs> I think as Christians, forgiveness is our mandate. It's what we do. 
I don't see it as being difficult. It's astonishing. How is it not difficult to forgive and pray for the ones who murdered your loved ones? I don't think he's trying to minimize the evil of what, was, of what happened. Okay. And, and I don't think he's trying to minimize even the emotional turmoil and the complexity of going through an event like that and grieving and all that stuff. I don't think he's trying to sweep that under the rug. I think he's just saying it's not that complicated. We're Christians, it's what we do. This will not make any sense to you if you're not a Christian. It makes no sense that you do this. What makes sense is love your neighbor, hate your enemy. It makes no sense to do this if you're not a Christian. But if you are a Christian, nothing else makes sense. We, we don't do that just because there's a command that God says, love your enemies. Sorry, I'm going to go love my enemies. You, you love your enemies. You can't help but love your enemies. As one who's been shown radical, unconditional love, you show radical, unconditional love. If you've been forgiven, you forgive. If your heart has been filled with the love of God, you love others. It's what we do. In our passage today, Jesus teaches us that love is not just for our friends, not just for our neighbors, but for everyone. As Christians, this is central to our faith. We, we love our enemies because that's what God does for us. That's what Jesus did when he gave his life for us on the cross. If we're sons of the Father, if we're followers of Jesus, we must do the same. To the extent that we understand and grasp the love of God for us in Christ, we will do the same. So in closing today, my exhortation is not primarily love your enemies. My exhortation is believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Believe that God loves you, not superficially, like of course he loves me, he loves everybody. But deeply, three-dimensionally, believe that God loves you, not because you're lovable, but because he's gracious. Think about that love, sing about that love, meditate on that love until the gracious love of God gets a hold of your heart and transforms you and overflows into love for enemies. Let's pray. Father, this is a miracle we're asking for. It is unbelievable. It's, uh, it's supernatural. But it exists. It's real. We look at our brothers and sisters in Egypt and, and the Coptic Christians who are living this out right now. And not just them. Millions of Christians around the world are facing this reality much more than we are. And they show us that it's possible, but not in ourselves. So please fill us with your love. Fill us with your spirit. And enable us in our own lives, the people around us who we want to hate, Father, change that hate to love, that we would show them grace. In Jesus' name.